Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Trisha Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today I have a special guest for you. The book is Designing the Mega Region, Meeting Urban Challenges at a New Scale by Jonathan Barnett, published by Island Press in 2020. Mr. Barnett is the Emeritus Professor of Practice in City and Regional Planning and the former Director of Urban Design Program at the University of Pennsylvania. He is an architect, a planner, and an educator. Uh, Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Yes, thank you. Uh, Let's start with, can you tell the audience about yourself? Well, as as you just uh, told the audience, I'm an architect and a planner. But one of my first uh, really significant jobs was I went to work for the New York City Planning Department as a director of urban design. And one of the first things that happened when I started working there is that uh, a proposal had come in for approval, and they showed me the model and said, you know, you are Mr. Urban Design, what do you think of it? And I said, it's really awful. And uh, they said, well, what would you suggest? And I went through a whole lot of possibilities. It turns out, that everything that I didn't like about the model and the proposal was in fact required by regulations of the city planning department. So I uh, said, oh, okay. And this has actually been a kind of life-changing revelation for me because what it told me eventually as I explored various aspects of the way cities and towns and environments are designed is that almost everything you see out there that happens happens for a reason, and it happens after a lot of people have made decisions that made it happen, so that every building, if you look at a building and you don't like it, someone has already decided to finance it. Uh, It's gone through a whole approvals process. Uh, Practically everything you see out there uh, is a product of a lot of governmental decisions, a lot of private decisions. So what I learned from my early experience was if you don't like the way things are happening, why can't you change the rule book so you make it happen in a better way? So, uh, and my career as an urban design consultant, which I followed up from the planning department, this has been a kind of guiding principle. It's, it's going to happen anyway. Why can't we make it better? And I think uh, the uh, word design, you know, for a lot of people, design implies uh, dress design or Uh, floral arrangements, and so forth. But design is actually a process. And uh, the economist Herbert Simon had a very good definition of design. He said, to design is to devise courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. And that's how I interpret design. And when we talk about designing the mega region, uh, that's what I mean by design. So I think the next question that you probably would be asking is, what is a mega region? Because I think people understand that cities have grown up into uh, 
large areas which are called city regions, where all the suburbs and all the cities are related to, to each other. What has been happening, though, in the last uh, 30, 40, maybe more years than that, is that the cities have been growing together. So if uh, the earliest place where that was really visible happening is along the East Coast. So if you were to start driving in Richmond, Virginia, and you drove all the way up to Portland, Maine, along the uh, eastern seaboard, uh, you would be very likely to be going through urban areas almost the entire trip. I mean, the areas of uh, open farmland in between uh, cities get smaller and smaller. And so urban geographers have come up with a new name for this, is to call it a mega region. And uh, recently, uh, population statistics have told us that these mega regions are forming all across the country. So that if you drive from uh, Santa Barbara to San Diego through Los Angeles, you're in uh, one of the two California mega regions. Barrier is another one. Uh, if you drive from uh, Eugene, Oregon, up to Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, that is now called Cascadia. That's another name for a mega region. The entire state of Florida is really becoming a mega region. You go up the east coast of Florida from uh, uh, Miami all the way up to Cocoa. That's almost all urban all the way along. Then if you make a, a turn and go towards Orlando and then on to Tampa, that's all mega region also. Like 70 or 80% of the people in Florida live in that mega region. And there's a mega region forming from Birmingham, Alabama, up through Atlanta, uh, onto Charlotte, onto Raleigh, almost all the way to Richmond, where it would join the Northeast mega region. So uh, when you look at population statistics, you can map these mega regions. There's mega regions leading out from Chicago, uh, along the Gulf Coast, in Texas, and so forth. Uh, the other question about mega regions is okay. People are settling in this way, but is it economic? Are there economic connections among all of these places? And the answer, I think, is yes. That there are now standards. There have been studies taken, which show that the patterns of commuters going from one part of the mega region to another, and this demonstrates an economic connection because people are mostly commuting for work. So, uh, I think you can say that mega regions are a real phenomenon, and the uh, Estimates for both economic growth and uh, population growth going up to 2050 are that these mega regions are going to absorb most of the population growth of the United States and a big part of the economic growth. So, um, mega region is actually, in some ways, another word for urban sprawl. And, you know, urban sprawl is obviously a derogatory term that you. Uh, um, you know, why can't cities sit up straight and uh, shape up? <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the fact is, it's actually a real economic process. That is, there's a lot of money to be made in, in redeveloping uh, uh, agricultural land or uh, suburban land. So it's deeply built into the whole American economic system, and it's almost certainly going to go on. So I go back to Herbert Simon's definition. Uh, can we change the course of existing situations into preferred ones? So that's what the book is about. Oh, well, I guess we've almost gotten to the next question. So what was your motivation for, uh, I love, by the way, I love that definition of design because I think that, yeah, sometimes we associate it with only fashion or floral or even just planting, but uh, that's a that's a real 
design principle. I like that definition. I might have to have you repeat that. Okay. I repeat it right now. To design, this is a quote, uh, to design is to devise courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. And the author is Herbert Simon, who was very well known as a a, a political scientist and economist. He won the Nobel Prize in economics. I love that. I think for our audience, I think that's a, a good thing to repeat. So let me let me ask you this. So you've you've done all this. You put all this time and energy uh, and uh, and research and experience. So what was your motivation for putting it all together into this book? Well, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is it's going to happen anyway. And right now, if you don't mind putting it this way, it's a big mess. That is, when people talk about urban sprawl, they're talking about a. Uh, uh, big stress on the environment because the way this growth is happening is it's urbanizing a lot of land, much of which shouldn't be urbanized. And the uh, consequences of the urban land being uh, is that the, there's runoff from uh, there's flash flooding, there's uh, uh, loss of water resources, it's impacting agriculture. Uh, in other words, see, from an environmental point of view, uh, these mega regions, and uh, as they are growing today, are not are not good news. From a transportation point of view, uh, in most of the mega regions, the transportation is really unbalanced. By which I mean that the, there's gridlock on the highways, and there's big delays in the airports. And the uh, projections by the you know federal government for uh, the future is that by 2030 or 2040. Uh, huge part of the uh, highway network in the United States, not just the interstates, but even the uh, important local roads, uh, is going to be gridlocked uh, 30 or 40% of the day, which is, for a practical point of view, most of the day, because people don't drive a lot from 10 at night until 6 in the morning. So uh, hitting that off, and, and we have learned that you can't really build your way out of a gridlock by adding more lanes, so you can hit worked for a while, but then the cars start filling up the new lanes. And uh, the other thing which is happening is that the older parts of uh, cities, not just big cities, but smaller cities, which are now engulfed in this mega region, are losing population. uh, And the people who are stuck in these older parts of the cities are the people who have the fewest uh, options from a financial point of view. So from the point of view of sustainability, mobility, and equity, these mega-regions are not developing in a way that's desirable. So my motivation, going back to my early lesson at the city planning department, is, okay, we're going to do it anyway. It's a lot of money that's going to be invested. It's all going to be approved by planning commissions and by uh, boards of directors of companies and by insurance companies who finance all of this stuff. Why can't we make it better? And forgetting what we ask for, why can't we get something more desirable? So that's the motivation. Oh yeah, and uh, so it's yeah, it's expensive. And uh, you talked about Florida. I was thinking, yeah, only up the Turnpike. Do you ever kind of go through an area of just? I, I guess it's sort of natural still uh, of uh, woods, etc. But yeah, you could drive all the way up and down the East Coast, all the way up and down most of the West Coast, and it South just runs Tampa into for sure. Yeah. Uh, so can we have it all? Can we have? Can we have? Can we plan? A better place for ecology and health. You were talking about that in the book. What about our ecologies? And uh, can we have it all? I think we can make a big improvement. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, 
yes, it's a problem, but we can't solve it unless we have governmental structures which cover the whole mega region. And of course, that's not going to happen. Uh, another thing people say as well in Europe and in China, they have high-speed rail, and high-speed rail is a great technique for pulling these mega regions together. And uh, I'll talk about this a little bit more later. But the uh, uh, the record of getting high-speed rail in the United States is not good. So uh, many people are saying, well, you can't solve this problem unless you wait for uh, new governmental structures, big federal government investments, and uh, maybe a change of heart among people that the prejudice will go away and so forth. So I'm saying, okay, we know none of that is going to happen anytime soon. Let's not wait. So what I've done in this book is to try to look at things that can happen now. But as I'm talking about governmental structures, which already exist, I'm talking about the normal business practices of the developers who are creating uh, today's urban sprawl in the mega regions. And I'm talking about what citizens and local communities can do right now without waiting for a major change of heart in uh, either in politics or in personal relations. So everything I propose in the book can be done, I think. It can be done incrementally. You don't have to have a master plan for the whole mega region before you do some of these things. So uh, I then take in the book, I look at the three different not not different, but three complementary uh, approaches. So let's, as you were asking, let's start with sustainability. Yes. So uh, the big piece that I think has been missing in government administration, remember everything that uh, uh, is being built now, even if it's really damaging, is being approved by local zoning and planning commissions. And these people are not bad people. They're doing their very best to do the best development they can but they are operating with a very antiquated rule book. And that rule book goes back to uh, the 1920s, when, if you can believe this, Herbert Hoover was the Secretary of Commerce. (laughs) And when Herbert Hoover was Secretary of Commerce, he instituted studies to regulate development. And today's zoning and subdivision ordinances, the master uh, template for them, was drafted in the Department of Commerce when Herbert Hoover was the secretary. And they have now been adopted all the way across the United States. So every local government has these uh, zoning ordinances. And they have all been brought up to date, obviously, in the last uh, almost 100 years. But they are still, in many respects, a bad fit for what kind of development is happening now. That's a long topic. I don't want to get into all of the details. But one of the big vulnerabilities in the uh, administration of all these local government ordinances is the map. And the map looks exactly like the map that was drawn in the Department of Commerce. It's a two-dimensional paper map, and it shows streets, it shows property lines, and it may, if there's a, a big river or a lake, it may show the edge of those. And that's it. There's nothing about the environment, whatever, on those maps. And uh, you know, yes, you can now look at it on a computer screen instead of on in a book, but it's still the same old hundred year old antiquated Herbert Hoover map. So in the same planning departments where they're using these antiquated maps for making all these development decisions, they have something called geographic information systems, which everybody calls GIS. I don't know if all your all people who are listening would know what that acronym means, but GIS. GIS, Geographic Information Systems, are 
ways of mapping really detailed information, including about the environment. It's now possible using LIDAR uh, from satellites to get very detailed uh, information about the natural environment. And the, uh, uh, that is sitting in the planning department offices right next to the people who are making the zoning decisions, but nobody is really making this connection. So one of the things I say in this book is make the GIS maps uh, the zoning maps. And this goes for the state governments also. They've got a lot of geographic information systems information. Let's make that map uh, the uh, policy guide at the state planning level as well. And that, it seems to me, is going to open the eyes of everybody who is making these decisions. Because all of a sudden, on one map, you can see floodplains. I mean, yes, there are another map with have floodplains on it. You can see uh, hills and valleys, what uh, geographers call contour. You can see vegetation. You can see the shapes of buildings. Uh, and what has stopped local governments from using this kind of information in the past is they didn't have it. Is if you are approving an individual project, you can ask the developer, let's say it's a shopping center, you can ask the developer for a survey of the site, and they do that. So the local government has a survey of the site, and it has this information that I was just describing on it, or it's a lot of it. But it doesn't go past the boundaries of the site, because you can't ask the developer to uh, uh, do a survey of everything in the community. So now the uh, local governments have something that's pretty much as good as survey information right on their computers right now. So they can look at a shopping center and say, okay, where is the runoff from the parking lot going to go when uh, there's a heavy rainstorm? And they can see the contours. They can see the streams. They can see the vulnerabilities downstream from the shopping center. Uh, they can see uh, you know, possible erosion of the landscape. Uh, they can see uh, information about temperature so they can see what kind of heat island effect is being created and so forth. I can go on extensively about what they can see. But the big point is uh, that these governmental authorities, including both the local government and the uh, 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 states, have been flying blind. They don't know when they make a decision about where a highway should go what the real environmental impact of it is. They may have read, done a report on it but they haven't got they haven't had information at the level where they could make a governmental decision and they were afraid of being challenged in court if they made a decision without the right information so this is a very important potential uh, which any community can do because they almost everybody almost every community has this information so they could convert their zoning to environmental zoning and once they have that information they could go out and say wait Here's a place next to this lake where we shouldn't really permit very much development at all, and so forth. It opens up a huge uh, avenue for uh, sustainability, which government has not dared to do because they didn't have the information. Well, yeah, that's a good point, because I was just thinking, I did some research on, um, I'm in the Florida Keys, and uh, I was looking <laughs> I was looking at the... Uh, I was looking at the old survey maps that uh, Henry Flagler did for when he built the railroad uh, recently. And uh, I was, you said that about the maps and I thought, yeah. Uh, when, then when they, 
built the overseas highway over the railroad, all it was was just a plat. It was just uh, big expanses of land. There was no other information there about uh, the environment because that's what I was kind of looking for, uh, just bare minimum lines. And uh, yeah, I think probably most people at this podcast have probably heard of GIS at this point, at least if they've been in school recently. So uh, using that for uh, making better decisions. So how, well, this is a a question I was going to ask later, but I'll I'll get into this a little bit. Uh, So how can government structures, you know, adapt and start managing these mega regions? What kind of structures do we need to have now that we have better information? Okay, we can, uh, for just this one issue, of course, the Florida Keys say you are living on the front line of climate change. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of geographic information is going to be really important for you. I mean, you, your local government should not be approving anything without a really serious uh, investigation of uh, potential uh, changes in tide patterns and so forth and so on. But we won't just talk about the Keys. It seems to me that that's uh, uh, not... And that's a sidetracking our, our general conversation about mega regions, but there are these kinds of issues in every mega region. I mean, in the, in, in California, people are worried about fire. Uh, in Houston, people are worried about uh, rain events, uh, and in uh, a lot of suburbs, people are worried about flash flooding. Farmers are worried about changes in crops, and so forth. There are uh, major environmental issues all over the United States, and this opens the door to being able to uh, 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 make judgments about them. Now, who, what's the governmental structure? There are three different possibilities. One is right there in your local governments uh, that they can start making zoning and development decisions based on their understanding of uh, floodplains and uh, uh, projections of future uh, change or of, of uh, wild wildland urban interface, which is the edge of forests. Uh, they can make decisions about that with a lot more detailed information than they had before. Then there are the states. Now, Florida has actually a pretty strong state planning system, uh, and most states have some state planning system. Uh, having this environmental information incorporated in all the state planning decisions, like highways and uh, uh, reservation of land for parks and water supply studies, all of that kind of thing, is going to make them much more uh, accurate. And then at the, uh, uh, where a mega region extends from state to state, uh, Florida mega regions mostly in the state of Florida, and you have what are called metropolitan planning organizations in Florida, and you actually have what's called a council of metropolitan planning organizations in Florida. So you've got a system already there where there's, there's a, uh, uh, a mechanism for people comparing environmental notes across uh, boundaries. Uh, and in Texas, the mega regions in Texas are basically inside the state. Uh, in California, that's also true. But when you look at the Northeast, you have a whole bunch of different states. And for that, there is another mechanism, which is called an interstate compact. And there are lots and lots of them, uh, several hundred already in existence. And they are made for a specific purpose. Many of them were made to manage uh, watersheds, rivers. And so you could have interstate compacts to manage mega regions. So that would be the answer I would give is local government, states, and then an interstate compact. And all of these things already exist. There are mechanisms for creating all of them or using all of them. 
Well, let's go back to then, like another thing I was thinking about, you know, you're talking about transportation. How do we, uh, and you talked about a little bit about your book, how do we balance transportation for everyone um, in these city planning from the big scale on down? What, what do you propose in your book? What I mentioned in the book particularly is that the passenger rail service in most of these mega regions is very deficient. The one place where it really works pretty well is the Northeast Corridor. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when we look at that, the uh, Accela service and the Northeast Direct service on uh, uh, Amtrak going from Washington up to Boston, uh, from New York to uh, uh, Washington, it has captured about three quarters of all the people who would otherwise take an airplane. And from uh, New York to Boston has captured more than half of the potential air travelers who are finding it's faster, uh, it's more convenient, and in many cases less expensive uh, to just get on the train, and particularly if you're just going, say, from Philadelphia to Baltimore or from New York to uh, uh, Providence. Uh, that It takes so long to go through security in the airports now that uh, it's not competitive, even if the plane only takes about an hour in the air it's actually faster to spend a little less than three hours in the train uh, when you take into account all of the different delays that will occur. Uh, so Amtrak has been really pretty successful in uh, becoming preferred over air travel in the Northeast corridor. That's also true of driving, but it's much more difficult to know which Amtrak passengers would have driven if they hadn't been Amtrak. So it's harder to put numbers on it, but it's clear that it's helping to balance the uh, uh, highway traffic as well, a little bit, not as much as maybe it ought to. So then the question is, okay, you have passenger rail. What works in the Northeast is that when the passenger rail actually connects to other forms of transportation. So when you get out of the train in uh, Washington, D.C., you can get on the Washington Metro and go to a lot of destinations in Washington. And the uh, uh, all of the uh, major cities in the Northeast corridor have rapid transit systems. Uh, they also all have a very complete highway system, which you still need. It's not, I mean, the people who are uh, questioning train travel also say people aren't going to give up their cars. That's great. You're not going to give up your cars. You're not going to take the train when you go to the grocery store. You're probably not going to take the train when you go to, uh, uh, you're probably not going to take transit when you go to a grocery store either. So uh, people need cars. People like to drive. Uh, nobody says that's going to stop but you need to balance the transportation system. And if you have passenger rail, which is a missing piece in a lot of places, you can take transit from, say, Tyson's Corner uh, in uh, Virginia to um, Washington's uh, Amtrak station. And you get on the train and you go to Baltimore and you get off the train, you can get on transit there and you, uh, you don't necessarily have to drive. And similarly, uh, you can take your bicycle on uh, transit, uh, particularly in Europe. They make special cars so that there's room for bicycles on them. Uh, one of the components of the balanced transportation system is bicycling, but it in enhances the usefulness of a bicycle if you can ride to the station, put your uh, bicycle on the uh, transit, uh, take the transit, either a bus or better preferably a uh, rail transit for bicycles to another destination and get on your bicycle and go on from there. 
So, and of course, pedestrians, uh, uh, if you're taking transit, you don't obviously have a car, so you want to be able to walk to the transit station. So all of these pieces have to fit together. That's why I call it balanced transportation. Now, interestingly enough, what's happening in Florida is the first extension in another mega region of the kind of passenger rail that you have in the Northeast. And what is especially interesting about that is it's being privately financed. Uh, Florida actually tried to do this with public finance and it didn't work out. That's another long story we could talk about, but that's not right now. But the uh, Virgin Trains, which is uh, Richard Branson's companies, is an investor in the Florida East Coast system. And they are already running trains up the East Coast from um, uh, Florida, from Miami to Fort Lauderdale and uh, on to West Palm Beach. And they are going to extend the, to, to the Orlando airport. It's already under construction. And from the Orlando airport on to Disney and then off onto Tampa. And that will be pretty much the uh, through the middle of the Florida mega region. And what's interesting about that is that private companies think they can make money doing this because the mega region is becoming so dense that it uh, uh, apparently uh, has enough customers that it can support a private private investment in railroads. And there hasn't been private investment in passenger rail in a very, very long time. So this is very encouraging. Either uh, it can be done by Amtrak and there'll be enough money uh, from passengers to make the service viable, or perhaps private investors will be interested in doing this. So all the mega regions have railway tracks, which could be upgraded to be like the Exxon. So you could, from as I mentioned, from Eugene, Oregon to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, from Santa Barbara to San Diego, from Chicago to Detroit. All of these are potential mega region uh, rail car corridors. And the, uh, uh, so I think the proposing, uh, I, what I do is I call this fast enough trains in the, in the book because these are not European style high speed rail trains. But the Excella is fast enough that it can attract passengers away from airlines without being a European style high speed. So it's fast enough. And Florida's will be fast enough. And fast enough, while it still costs money to create, you could create in the San Francisco mega region, you could create fast enough trains for a lot less money than high-speed rail. Yeah, and it's been very successful, too. Um, they've uh, they started that, yeah, several years ago, and it's running through Miami. And uh, they, yeah, it got canceled, yeah, from Orlando to Tampa, which is a disappointment because... I hadn't driven that in a long time. And then I had the opportunity to drive it many years ago. And I'm like, oh, this is just miserable. It does. It keeps me from going places because I would love to go up to Orlando more or Tampa more. Um, but uh, yeah, you just, the physical driving part of it, yeah, it just gets tiring. I like my car, but I don't like it all the time. <laughs> well, I'm hoping this can happen. I mean, we're looking ahead 50 to 2050 here. So if something is not going as well as it could right now, it doesn't necessarily mean the game is over. I mean, one of the corridors, which is a possibility, is from Chicago to Detroit. And there's actually an interstate compact to try to get that built. And because uh, it involves Indiana and Michigan as well as Illinois. And then another corridor is uh, from Chicago up to Milwaukee, which is relatively short. And uh, so this is the other thing that, uh, the second thing in my trilogy of uh, proposals is first is to 
uh, enable government decision-making to take the environment into account by using GIS. The second is to build fast enough trains, at least as fast as the ones in the Northeast Corridor, in order to balance the transportation system. But just building trains is not enough. You need all the other stuff, too. You need the transit. Uh, you need the highways. You need the bicycle lanes. You need the pedestrians. You need the, you need sidewalks and pedestrian-friendly uh, design of cities. So that's two out of the three. Well, I think this is going to be a boom for uh, bicycle shops. That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> well, bicycles is a very good form of transportation. Uh, it does require more infrastructure than walking. I'm a big partisan of walking because I live in the center of uh, Philadelphia. But the uh, uh, the thing about bicycles is if you, if you use them for commuting, you may need a place to change and to take showers and so forth when you get to the office. And you need protected bicycle lanes, which are starting to be built. I mean, New York City, for example, has invested a lot of uh, money in creating pedestrian-friendly uh, areas, but also protected bicycle lanes. And other cities are emulating this. And uh, it uh, reduces traffic accidents. So uh, it's part of the idea of trying to go to zero traffic deaths uh, is to make uh, accommodation for bicycles. So it's not just about transportation. It's also about safety. And I think I interrupted you. What was your next strategy in the book? Well, the third part of what I'm talking about is equity. Mm-hmm. And the uh, a lot of the motivation for people who move to the suburbs is to get away from cities. And they want to get away from cities because they believe that the school system is no good and that there's crime. And there's a lot of uh, racism at the uh, back of some of those uh, decisions. And what the first thing you need to understand is that the uh, we live in a uh, physically very segregated country, and the reason for that is actually government policy. Uh, at the beginning of the equity section of my book, I have a photograph uh, from Google, which shows Bridgeport, Connecticut, and Fairfield, Connecticut, which are adjacent communities. And Bridgeport is one of the most distressed cities in the whole of the United States. There was an article in the Atlantic a couple of years ago which said that Bridgeport was the epicenter of American inequality. And right across the border is Fairfield, Connecticut, which is an affluent community uh, with large lot zoning in large parts of the area, beautiful houses, and country clubs and big golf courses. And you can see this from the air. Uh, you can see all the trees in green in uh, Fairfield County, uh, excuse me, in Fairfield's uh, community. Uh, you can see the, uh, the golf courses, you can see the parks, uh, you can see all the schools, and then you look right at the border. There's a kind of jagged line, and you can see the pushed together streets and the empty lots and the deteriorated housing and vacant factories in Bridgeport. And what is not generally realized is that American uh, policy, first of all, there were deed restrictions for a very, very long time, uh, which prevented some people from moving to the suburbs. It wasn't just African-Americans. It was also Jews. It was also Catholics. And the, uh, uh, this ugly history uh, was institutionalized during the New Deal because the Federal Housing Administration had to lend money for mortgages. And while that was a great boon to uh, uh, many, many people, they decided that they needed to be sure that mortgages were safe. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the phrase redlining comes from maps made by the government that they mapped areas that they thought were not suitable for mortgage investment, and they colored them red. And they also had yellow areas, which had 
uh, immigrant groups or people that they didn't think were uh, such good credit risks. And then they had, so it was like a traffic signal. They had red, yellow, and green districts on their maps. And they were comfortable lending money in the green districts. They were not so comfortable lending in the yellow districts. And they didn't lend at all in the red districts. And so a community like Fairfield grew up as a consequence of redlining. When the big boom in suburban construction took place after World War II, those FHA maps were still instrumental. And the uh, it really didn't become uh, deed restriction didn't become unconstitutional until the Supreme Court ruled in 1968. So the people who lived in Fairfield are the beneficiary of a segregated community that they don't understand was segregated by the government. So, um, and people who live in these uh, green communities, these uh, beautiful suburbs, are very protective. Uh, Their life savings are invested in their house. Uh, They move there because of the school system. Uh, they don't want change. And uh, it's unfortunately understandable why they don't understand that there has to be change. But I think you have to sort of tiptoe into this. We've seen now a couple of instances. The city of Minneapolis has decided that R1, single-family zoning, uh, should now permit up to, I think it's three uh, dwelling units, that is the original house plus two more, so they're saying that single-family zoning can no longer exclude higher density. And the state of Oregon has done something similar. Now, this is not really going to happen in a lot of parts of the United States, but it's an example of the legislature looking at a problem and saying, we will uh, have a silver bullet here. We will make it uh, legal to have more um, houses in single-family zones. We will. Uh, they don't eliminate single-family zoning because if you own a single-family house, it's still a single-family. The difficulty with this one is that, like most magic bullets, it doesn't hit what you're trying to aim for, and it hits a lot of other stuff. Uh, There's a real estate rule of thumb, which is that you don't want to spend more than a quarter of the eventual sale price of the house on the land. So if you buy a million-dollar lot in a suburb, a million-dollar house a lot, and you demolish the house in order to build as you can in uh, in Portland, Oregon, under the new law, four new dwelling units. Each of those would have to sell for a million dollars. In other words, a quarter of a million dollars is 250000 which is what you paid for the land for your new unit. So it has to sell for a million dollars. So this means that the neighborhoods of million-dollar houses are not going to be touched by this kind of legislation. And the areas where a house is like 200000 which is lived in by recent immigrants who have just barely been able to afford their first new house, they're the ones who are going to be approached by developers who say, we want to buy your house so we can put up three units or four units or whatever. So I'm not convinced that legislating away single-family zoning is the way to do this. And in a community like Fairfield or a state like Connecticut, that's going to be a very high political lift, even if you thought it was worth doing. So what I've been looking for and what I describe in my book are other approaches to making more uh, more types of different kinds of dwelling units uh, available in single-family suburbs like Fairfield and making uh, more affordable units in single-family suburbs like Fairfield. And a lot of what are uh, townhouses and small lot housing is now being built way, way out in the country because that's the only place where developers can build it. So I'm saying, wait a minute, let's take a look at these suburbs in more detail. So 
One thing you see when you are in Fairfield or any of these suburbs is that there's a main road going through it, which is full of shopping. Uh, these are called commercial corridors by zoning people or commercial strips. And every community has them. You drive along on both sides of the street. You find um, shopping. Uh, you might find franchise uh, McDonald's type or Taco Bell type stores. You find motels. You find uh, uh, Kmart's. Uh, you find concentration of retailing along these streets. And what's happening in retail has just been a revolution in retail. People are buying stuff online. So when you drive along these commercial strips in these communities now, there are a lot of vacant stores and there are a lot of empty parking lots. And it used to be that the land along these uh, highways was too expensive for housing. And most of these uh, commercial corridors are not even zoned for housing. This is zoned commercial which in most communities doesn't permit retail, or it only permits a limited amount of retail. So I am saying in my book, look, this is a big land bank which is being created. All these property owners have vacant stores and empty parking lots, and they are open to an offer. And if the local government will rezone uh, these commercial properties for uh, apartments and townhouses, the private market will be willing to build them. And some proportion of the new units that you build in a suburb can be made affordable. Uh, There are ways of doing that. Montgomery County in suburban Washington, D.C., it's in Maryland, has had a program for years and years where they give developers a small number of extra units uh, in each of their zones if they will build uh, a proportion of affordable housing units. And if you follow the Montgomery County playbook, along these corridors uh, in the uh, in the suburban communities, uh, you could uh, not only create uh, townhouses and uh, apartments, and but you could make some of them affordable. And the people who live in a community like Fairfield, uh, the their children probably can't afford to live there. Now, Fairfield does have some apartments, but most of them are fairly high-priced condos for senior citizens. And uh, so if you grew up in Fairfield and you want a house, you probably can't afford it. So one of the things that building this, uh, I mean, when you, when you get older, you can probably afford it when you make more money. But if you are right out of college or if you're a young family, you may not be able to live in the community where you grew up. And if your parents want to downsize their house uh, and move to a, a, a smaller apartment, uh, their options are limited also. So building um, townhouses and apartments along these highway corridors that run through every one of these suburbs uh, would be a valuable thing for the local people. Uh, It could create more affordable housing. And it's something that the uh, real estate industry would support. So that's one proposal I'm making. Rather than have the state legislature mandate something, why not have the local government change the zoning in these commercial corridors and see if they can't get some development? Uh, another thing is um, what used to be called garage apartments in the bad old days when the servants lived over the garage. Uh, <laughs> those are now called, in zoning speak, accessory dwelling units. Yeah. And the accessory dwelling unit is something that benefits the uh, owner of the house. Uh, first of all, you could have, I don't know if you want it or not, but your in-laws living in an apartment on your property. Uh, or your children, or uh, 
just a uh, smaller family. It's nice to know there are other people nearby. Uh, you are getting income from your accessory dwelling unit. And unlike the proposal in Minneapolis or in uh, the state of Argonne, uh, this is, it's not a separate zoning lot. It's still, it's still your property. Uh, so uh, it's a rental property. And what would make a big difference in these suburbs if it were made possible for anyone who wants to do this, who has a big enough lot, uh, to build a one accessory dwelling unit for income, for uh, housing extended family, uh, for companionship. If someone's living alone in a house, maybe having someone living in a dwelling unit next door is not a terrible idea. Uh, so there are a lot of benefits to uh, these accessory dwelling units. And it seems to me even in uh, a community which, uh, like Fairfield, has grown up uh, as a beneficiary of segregation uh, and doesn't understand its history, uh, that while there will be objections, maybe uh, the people who live in those kind of communities can say, wait a minute, accessory dwelling units benefit me. Uh, my retirement income could be built up by having one of these things. And uh, perhaps the value of my property be, can be enhanced. And this is not a new idea. A lot of local governments not only have uh, accessory dwelling unit permits, but they have guidelines. It's pretty important how you do this. You don't want a lot of cars parked in the front yard. Uh, you don't want a bunch of mouse to a shanty being built in the back. So uh, most of these accessory dwelling unit uh, uh, laws uh, require a, re a zoning review or a subdivision review before you uh, can build. And that seems to me very legitimate so that the local government can look at this and say, yes, this is a good proposal. You can also put limits on how big the second unit can be. So that's another thing that I'm proposing is that uh, you uh, can make these communities more open to having smaller apartments uh, by benefiting the people who already live there. And the third thing is when you look at the growth pattern that's going around uh, in the new parts of the mega region, uh, remember that song about little boxes, all made of ticky tacky? I don't know if all of your listeners remember it. It's a long time ago. But uh, what happens in the suburbs is that uh, all of the, in a development, almost all the houses are the same size. And the reason for that is, again, the development regulations. The size of your development uh, excuse me, the number of houses in your development is regulated by the lot size. So if you are in a quarter acre zoning district uh, and you lay out a new subdivision on 100 acres, all of the lots have to be a quarter acre, which for, is rounded down to 10,000 square feet. So all the lots are the same. Uh, so you maximize the amount of land that has to be bulldozed to make these houses. And you only create one kind of house. And this is a pattern. If you fly over the United States, you can see miles and miles and miles of subdivisions which have been created where all the houses are on the same size lawn. And this is purely a zoning artifact. This is not the market. This is what the Herbert Hoover zoning regulations are doing 100 years later. And you can make a very small technical change which is that you change the minimum lot size from 10,000 square feet to, let's say, 2,500 square feet, which is the uh, uh, size of a townhouse lot, which is 25 by 100. 
and but you don't change the overall zoning. So you say, okay, in 100 acres, you can build 400 houses at quarter acre. You can still build 400 houses, and that's the limit. But some of them can be row houses, and some of them, even in an extreme, could be an apartment house, and some of them could be estate lots of four acres or 10 acres. And uh, it would be up to the developer and the local government to decide what the best mix of housing would be, and it would still be regulated. You do need zoning regulations. They're not totally evil. The purpose of zoning is to keep the amount of people in a community in step with the schools and the, and the transportation system and so forth. And having that kind of metering of the number of people in a community is beneficial. What's been wrong is depending on the lot size to do it. And so a very simple change, which I think any community could make, would be to change the minimum lot size, but keep the zoning density the same. And that would immediately change the whole growth pattern in the suburbs from uh, big developments, sometimes as many as 2,000 or 3,000 houses, all on the same size lot, to communities, which could be walkable, where some of the houses were townhouses, some of them were apartments, some of them were uh, quarter-acre houses, lot houses, and some of them maybe were big lots uh, where people had horse farms all on the same piece of property. So that's the other major proposal I'm making in the book about equity, which is if you make all new development out in these suburbs, include, or you let, I should say, rather than make, if you let all development in these suburban areas, uh, which is new, include uh, uh, small lots as well as big lots, uh, you could have a much more diverse community created uh, without any change in the business practices or regulations other than the change in the lot size. So those are what I'm proposing under the banner of equity. I understand that this doesn't solve all the equity problems in the whole of the United States. We're only talking about growth management in this book. I'm not trying to solve every social problem. Uh, I don't know anybody who knows how to solve every <laughs> social problem. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that just because this doesn't solve everything that it shouldn't be done. So I'm saying don't wait for new governmental structures. Don't wait for a change of heart where everybody says, okay, uh, we're all going to live together. We understand we're all together and should be in the same boat. I mean, I think that should happen. But And don't wait for real high-speed rail like you have in Europe or in China or in all our economic competitors, uh, including Korea and Taiwan. Build fast enough trains. They're much less expensive. They'll do the job we need done. They'll help balance the transportation system. And so over the next 30 years, once these mega regions take form, let's do it right. That's my yeah. message. Oh, I agree. Did you want to talk about a little bit about uh, what's happening now, a, a current event is the uh, coronavirus uh, well, and how, yeah, we talked about that before we started uh, the show. Uh it may what, have the effect of making me forget I should talk about it on the show, so I'm glad you <laughs> That's okay. I, I remember that. So um, how would you address that issue with uh, our urban density? Well, that is something that you a lot, you know, it's uh, everybody has to talk about this right now. I'm uh, sitting in a lockdown situation here in Philadelphia. Uh, if you look at a map of coronavirus, it's going to look it's forming up to look very much like a map of mega regions. And the reason for that is that that's where all the people live. And there are people out there on the internet who are respectable people who are saying, see, I told you, density is bad. You shouldn't live in cities. You should live in uh, 
rural areas. Uh, you shouldn't get on pub, public transit where you're going to uh, be breathed on by all kinds of people you don't know. You should drive in your car where you are probably the only passenger and it's all safe. And as a social distancing, I mean, that's actually a good phrase for it. These people are advocating social distancing. And I think it's an absolutely absurd uh, position to take because you just, first of all, we don't know that the rural areas are going to be spared uh, from the coronavirus. I certainly hope they are, will be. But we are living in a very interconnected society. That is, your, you could go on a big farm in the Midwest, which is hundreds and hundreds of acres, and the nearest house is a mile away. But at certain times of the year, you have a couple of hundred migrant workers coming to help with the harvest. Uh, and the owner of the farm uh, spends the winter in Florida. So you can't be sure just because you're looking at an aerial photograph that you're looking at separated places and you are therefore safe from the coronavirus. If you take your car and you go to Disneyland, uh, you are exposed to density regardless of where you live. And if you fly in an airplane, which many people who live in rural areas do, you are in a closed cabin with recirculating air with uh, several hundred other people. Uh, I don't think that uh, I mean, I read an article online quite recently that said New York is over. Uh, you're not going to be able to live this way anymore because of pandemics. And uh, that strikes me as an absolutely absurd conclusion for two reasons. One is A, it wouldn't work. But B, most of the people who live in this country uh, live in New York and other such places. Uh, or they live in suburbs like Fairfield, which are effectively part of the New York metropolitan region. Or even if they live in rural areas like parts of New Hampshire and Vermont, it's where people go to ski or it's where there's summer people come uh, to vacation. And you can't change this deeply embedded uh, uh, land use and population and economic system uh, in favor of just one factor. I mean, you could argue that the uh, it, there are countries that have managed to... Uh, head off the worst effects of this virus also. So it appears that China, for example, which is a much denser country than the United States and has five times the population, uh, has much lower uh, figures than we do and seems to have at least reached a pause in the academic epidemic. So I think it's an absurd position, but people are going to be taking it, that the pandemic proves that uh, urban density is bad, that everybody should live in a dispersed way. That's still the mega region, by the way. And uh, I think it's, it's an argument that is not only deeply selfish and only benefits a very tiny fraction of the population, but it's unworkable. So that's what I think about it. Well, yeah, that's true. And, and honestly, um, obviously, but I was looking back through some history and uh, pandemics are always going to kind of come and go. It doesn't really matter, you know, if there's density or or not. You know, back in 1918, there wasn't as much density either, and uh, they still had a pandemic too. It could still spread in lots of diff- different ways and different avenues. And we're much more interconnected now than we were in 1918. So yes, mm-hmm. so let's let's hope that we can see our way through this present situation, where it's very hard to think about anything but it. You know, just going out for a walk is an adventure as you try to stay six feet away from everybody else. Uh, going to the market is an adventure. All of this 
uh, it's hard to think about anything else right now. But presumably, uh, this is going to be controlled. It took us a long time to wake up to the problem, but we are going to solve it. And then we need to start looking again at these major long-term problems. And the growth of the mega region is a major long-term problem. We can either do it wrong and really mess up the country, uh, uh, destroy large chunks of the uh, uh, natural environment, uh, have unworkable gridlock, have major air traffic delays all the time, uh, have much increased inequity where people are stuck in communities which are totally bypassed by new development that's taking place uh, many, many miles away, uh, that could all happen. Or we could wake up. We could say, wait a minute, uh, if we had maybe done this with pandemics, it might have been not as bad. Here's a potential big problem which is about to happen. It's already happening in slow motion right now. There are very simple, perfectly reasonable, uh, short-term but uh, incremental steps which we could all take. And uh, people in their own communities could go, could advocate for these steps. Uh, uh, people on zoning and planning boards could advocate for these steps. People who work in the state and local governments could advocate for these steps. Uh, the uh, people who sell uh, GIS equipment could wake up and say, wait a minute, there's a big market here. We could sell this service to all these local communities. Uh, there's a lot that could be done uh, through perfectly normal behavior without waiting for big government to solve it, without waiting for huge uh, multi-trillion dollar expenditures on uh, uh, transportation, although it would be a good idea. I'm not against it. I would love to see it happen. But there's a lot we can do without waiting for all that. Oh, yes, I agree. And, you know, I was thinking to um, an, an old friend of mine, she was a nurse for 50 years, and she'd say, she worked in hospitals. She's like, well, if you just wash your hands, you never get sick. She says, I never get sick. I just wash my hands. <laughs> well, there you are. It's something that you can't get much more local than washing your hands. It has a global effect. Uh, well, uh, Jonathan, it was a pleasure to have you here today, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell the audience uh, what new projects are you working on now? Well, as you might expect, I'm working on another book uh, with Matthias Bau, who is one of my colleagues at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we are working on a book uh, called Managing the Climate Crisis, which takes off from some of the same premises that uh, we've just been discussing. Here's another slow motion uh, big problem which is that large parts of the United States are going to be uh, impacted by a changing climate. And it's going to have a different effect in different parts of the country. Down in the Florida Keys, you're going to be worried about uh, hurricanes and uh, rising seas. Uh, in uh, parts of the far west, you're going to be worried about living next to a forest, which uh, is flammable because of drought. Uh, in Houston, you're going to be worried about another torrential downpour uh, on the farm, you're going to be worried about changing growing seasons. Uh, in uh, uh, cities, you're going to be worried about uh, heat waves, uh, particularly in a city like, say, Phoenix, where it's beginning to be a question uh, whether you can really live there in the summer or not in 20 or 30 years. So this is a national problem. It's not really being conceived as a national problem yet. We've just seen with the coronavirus that 
the Congress can take action on national problems when it has to. Uh, and what Matisse and I are trying to do is to demonstrate that it's a national problem. We're all in this together. We have a limited amount of time and we need to try to solve it. So managing the climate crisis, next project. <laughs> I look forward to you have to send me that book. Um, and again, uh, thank you for being here today. And the book is Designing the Mega Region, Meeting Urban Challenges at a New Scale by Jonathan Barnett, published by Island Press in 2020. And I'm Trisha Cuffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>